Did you catch those words in those hymns about trouble, trembling heart? The fact that Christ wants to have us be at liberty and thinking about uh, just the joy of rest in Christ. All of these things are part, are just the threads of going through the New Testament for you as a believer. And I, I was reading about how uh, John Wesley, uh, preaching and teaching about the grace of Christ, teaching about the gospel in so many ways, uh, never really understood it until he was about 41. And when he came over uh, from Europe and that trip over, he had a warm feeling that the Spirit of God had made all of these things a reality for him. And so sometimes it's kind of difficult for Christians to understand the reality of what we say we believe and to experience it in such a way that it really does grip your heart that the trembling heart is met with a kind, gracious Savior. He moves right into your heart. It's not unusual that people believe what they believe and not experience what they believe. C.S. Lewis was the same way. It was at 51 that he began to understand what forgiveness was all about. If you're here, sometimes you you think, "I, I, I know the gospel, I know those words, but the reality of Christ really being your companion, your Lord, your Savior, your friend. It's not always uh, assumed that people know Christ that well, but we all are God's people, and we're all growing together as we're brought together. And, And so for this week, I was thinking about, again, the Corinthians, and I've been praying for you and thinking about the whole, what I'm doing. So my, my retreat was to go away and think, okay, God, what, uh, you know, give me some guidance in thinking about things. And so, and it's funny how it's hard to work with people to get them to grow in Christ until the Spirit of God does that work. And so, as I got into the Scripture this week, I don't know, when you read the Bible, sometimes the Bible can be quite confusing. I had one person say, um, I, I just don't know my Bible. If you don't know the Bible, then you don't know the spirit behind the Bible that does these things, unless you're moving in ways to improve your relationship. And you get into this particular passage in 1 Corinthians 7, and, and what's amazing to me is when I, when I go into the commentaries, it, it, there seems to be such compartmentalized sections and fragments, and people focus on this, and, and they forget all the... God is trying to say to us, to help us experience that. And so Paul wants the Corinthians to know, and and God wants me to know, and you to know as well, that there's something about this freedom of walking in a fallen world where the Holy Spirit gives you the strength, gives you the power, gives you the wisdom, and that's how he starts the book of Corinthians. But he gets into these sections in chapter beginning with chapter 5, and he goes into particulars, and we forget all the things that he said. But I'm bringing it all back down to that title I said this week, is this is something I want to bring into this context of marriage, because this is about the freedom in and out of marriage. So that's going to be the, the, the arena that we're going to focus on Because if you read it from a North American perspective today, you're going to really misunderstand what was going on with these Corinthians. Now, the Corinthians were young people 
who didn't have the Wesley or the Lewis. They hadn't had the season. They hadn't had the growth. They had a conversion. They were saints, but they didn't understand what they didn't understand. They were sophomores in the spirit. They were young, and they thought they didn't understand that what Christ was here to do was to undo what Satan did and to reverse the curse so that we are restored and renewed based on the gospel of Christ. We've been justified. We've been sanctified. We are God's people filled with God's spirit. And so the Corinthians, the, the Corinthians, like I mentioned last week, they were entangled with a replacement theory of the religion, and they were using Christ as an addition to what they understood, as a, almost as a self-help. If he helps me get better, makes me better, then I'll follow Christ. If he says something that's kind of confusing, I'll walk away from it. But the Corinthians had a problem just like we have the problem. Their culture had too much influence on their thinking. And their culture was the very thing that prevented them from having that experience with Christ to go deeper. And, but God wants to restore our understanding, our biblical worldview. And that's what the Spirit of God came to do, to transform, not inform, but to transform us and to get us out of our culture. So last week, Paul ends in 1 Corinthians 6 with a very clear definition, and we'll, we'll go back over these things as we get into the applications later on. But he makes this clear distinction. He says, the body is for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Well, we kind of take that in general, but we understand that. But it meant something different. We'll get into that today. Because what you have there in Corinth and what you have here is that people are not free in their body. There's something that goes on in the human, material, physical body that you and I still wrestle with because of the cultural input that we have. I'll unpack that for us as we go along. But the, the, the Paul was saying that you are called, you are sanctified, and God is setting you, your spirit and your body, and all of you holistically to pursue holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. But he was talking about this growth in sanctification, this growth of understanding that we have been delivered, and now we are invited to participate as a people of God apart from our culture. And so there's some really deep things going on. But what Paul, as I mentioned, he was making this distinction between liberty and freedom. Now remember two weeks ago I introduced this. And what is liberty? Liberty means there's no King Kong. Liberty means there's no gorilla on your back. Liberty means that there's an oppressor, there's a tyrant, there's a boss, there's a dominant force, an addictive force. There's a bonding, a binding that in, this traps you into your world that is being controlled by something outside of you. Like the Holocaust, they had to be liberated out of the Auschwitz, out of the concentration camps. Sin will bind you. Sin will control you. The trap of the flesh will certainly destroy you. And yet for the Corinthians, they understood 
that liberty meant being liberated. And so it means not enslaved, not entangled, and not endangered. From Satan, sin, sin, and death, you've been set free, liberated. So that idea of setting free from the oppressor. But the freedom, the freedom that Paul wanted to talk about means that there's no King Kong, there's no controlling demonic spirit, but there's the Holy Spirit. And so the freedom that is ours in Christ, Paul would say, where the Spirit of the Lord is, you really are free, most free. And that's why I like F.F. Bruce's title for Paul. He's the apostle of the heart set free. And I would say for you, believer, that is for you. Your heart is to be set free, not just from sin, not just from death and danger and entanglement, but free to love Christ with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Free to love other people with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Free to love yourself with all your heart, soul. You are to be free in Christ. And yet the Corinthians weren't free, and they thought they were free. That was the problem. They were arguing from the flesh. I've got my rights. I'm, I'm free to do what I want. I'm, this is Corinth, by all means. We're not like the other countries. So they were arrogant. But Paul was arguing from the scriptures. Paul was arguing from the spirit. And so there's a tension that the flesh sets against the spirit and the spirit sets against the flesh. This is the world we live in. And I ended last week with a question, and I ask it again. Were they Corinthian Christians? Or were they Christian Corinthians? The noun is the important part because the adjective describes the noun. The the adjective, the descriptors are in the adjectival, as Tony Evans would say, describes the noun. And therefore, if you were Christian, if you were Christian Corinthian, it means the bottom identity that you associate with is I'm Corinthian. I'm Corinthian. And I'll add Christ on top of it. I'm a Christian Corinthian. And therefore, what really governs me and what drives my, motivates me is my culture, because I'm Corinthian. My identity is my tribe. My identity is my nation. My identity is my ethnic group. I am my people. I'm Corinthian. And of course, you know, to be Corinthian means to be really loose, because their idea of being Corinthian, everybody knew was, well, he's easy, she's easy. And Satan had those guys so bound up so bound up. Were they Christian Corinthians or were they Corinthian Christians? And that noun, if you are a Christian and you understand and experience what that means, it means you are so radically different from your culture. Because at the core is you have the Spirit of God who's brought the cross of Christ and you understand that body that Jesus took on was a very important important part of the testimony that you too have a body and in that body dwells the Spirit of God. And therefore we are separated from the world. We are not Christian Corinthians. We are they were Corinthian Christians. And so I ask, are we American Christians? Or are we Christian Americans? And so it's a question, would you give up your citizenship 
as I was asked to do when I went to Venezuela, the first time I thought about missions, God is asking me to give up my American citizenship. And I walked around Butler campus that night praying about that. I thought, I don't determine what country I was born in. My citizenship is really not my choice. I, I am free to give it up. And when I made that decision, I am not just an American holding on to my rights. I'm a Christian. And that liberated me to say, I can go anywhere in the world. And with that, God moved me into Mexico and moved me into Venezuela. No, Japan. I was free. I was free. I, I'm not bound by any geographical or demographic tag. But the problem that they didn't understand is that deculturalization, leaving your country, leaving your identity, leaving your group, your tribe, that was a problem with the Jews. We are the Jews. We are, we are God's people. And they limited themselves by their national ethnic identity. The Jews will not replace us. The Christians will not replace us. This replacement theory is then there's a combination of culture and Christianity that destroys everyone. And that's why Isaiah says, return, come back. Oh, backsliding children, says the Lord, I am married to you. Your husband is your maker. Your identity is in the one who calls you, who loves you, who redeems you, who knows you, who made you, who wants to walk with you and transform you. I will take you from a city to from a family, and I will bring you to Jerusalem, to Zion. And therefore, the Spirit of God does his work. As Paul would say, the work is to crucify your idea that you belong to the world or to crucify that you belong to yourself because you belong and you were bought with a very special price. I belong. You belong to Christ. So with that, Paul gets into something very interesting I want to share with you. Now, Paul was, Paul was smart, and he was seasoned. Now, there's a passage in 1 Timothy I want you to read with me. It's, it's up here, 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 5. Because this fits our time as it does their time. But what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, he says, The Holy Spirit clearly says this, that in latter times some will abandon the faith now follow very carefully what it says. Some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and the things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared. You can almost hear that burning as with a hot iron. Now, if the Spirit is warning the Corinthians, and, and, and Paul's writing to the Ephesians, but it's the Mediterranean church, what, what teaching would, be, would come to mind in your thinking? What teaching would be described as deceiving, demonic, that would cause people to leave the faith? What comes to your mind? If you were Satan and you're going to try to trick the church, and what teaching would be deceiving 
have a deceiving spirit and the things taught by demons. Taught by hypocritical liars. Paul warns Timothy, you stay in Ephesus to take care of these guys because there's some teaching that I don't want them to hear, but they were hearing it. What was the teaching? It blew me away too. Listen to the next passage. They forbid people to marry. What? Demonic? Deceiving? Liars? Hypocrites? They don't want people to marry. Well, that's not that important, is it? That demonic? Deceiving? They forbid. Don't you dare get married. And they order them to abstain from certain foods. Don't touch that. Don't eat that. The rule is if you're going to be spiritual, you're not going to do those things. But God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good. Everything God created is good. Everything God created is good. No, no, it's not good. It's not good. Marriage isn't good. This food is not good. Paul says, Timothy, you've got to stay there and teach them. Because it's demonic and it's deceiving. Strong words. Kind of heavy. I thought, I'm kind of surprised that there were that much in it. But because it is consecrated, whatever we offer to the Lord is consecrated by the Word of God in prayer. Well, here's the point. <clears throat> the Corinthians are embedded in their culture. And Paul goes into the Corinthian culture as a Gentile. And he sees... He knows what they're going through, and he understands what they're going through. But the question that Paul, I ask, is why is marriage, then, the big issue? Why was it a concern at all? And here's my answers to that. Because marriage, as the core symbol metaphor on the earth about this relationship that's been redeemed between God and man, marriage, the communion, the intimate ally that you have in Christ, if that is destroyed, Satan wins. You destroy relationship at the very core of love. And Paul says, I know, because there is power in sexual sin to destroy the human body. The sexual sin will destroy the human spirit. Paul, or Peter says, there is a war inside. But Paul knew of the sin to destroy the mystery of marriage, the beauty of of oneness, the beauty of joy, enjoying the body and enjoying the spirit and enjoying the relationship. Paul knew sin would destroy that. Paul knew that sin was out to deceive you, not only in your spirit, but he was to deceive you in how you think about your body. He knew that the gospel message that God can take a sinful, trembling, terrified, destroyed, scarred heart that's so self-centered and dead in spirit. And the Spirit of God can bring that to life, that chaos, and restore it to beauty. And you lose the gospel, you lose the whole basis of society. And Paul understood that the role of the Holy Spirit was to restore those who belong to Christ, restore them and recreate in them something wonderful. Well, as you get into chapter 7, you have a story here 
that Paul isn't just sitting down and says, well, let's see, I'm going to think about what they need, a biblical view of marriage. I want to sit down and write them the theology of marriage. He doesn't do that. Paul doesn't initiate this conversation. But he got it in the form of a letter, a question and answer, as it were. They had written to Paul some questions, and that letter has disappeared. It's gone. We don't have that. So by reading his response to their questions, you'll pick up as we eavesdrop in these verses. And I'm going to give you my thoughts and think through those questions and answers because this is this was surprisingly, um, it was more than I was, I didn't bargain. I thought, there's more to this than I thought. So I had to dig a little deeper. So I'm going to open the door and, and share with you some things. And then we're going to tease it out in the next couple of weeks because it deals directly with our culture as it dealt directly with them. There were Corinthian questions. Now imagine if you lived in the base of Corinth. And at the top of that mountain, the Acro-Corinth, that hill is where all the sex was. A temple of a thousand prostitutes. If you were married, your job was to go up that mountain and have sex with a lot of men and maybe women. But it was a culture given to worship sex. Unbelievably, because this was also a port city where a lot of people would come in. And so they would write to Paul, okay, Paul, we got some questions now that we're Christians. About, what about this? Well, we got lots of questions, Paul. So here are some of them that I thought. The first one was, well, who are you? Who are you, Paul, to tell us anything about sex and marriage? You're not qualified. That was a question he got. What is the relationship between sex and marriage? If a man can get sex in the temple, why get married? I mean, why get married? You get milk from the cow, don't buy the cow. There's one person said it. And so is sexuality really good or evil? And they were confused. Is uh, What's the purpose of sex in the first place? And can we have more than one wife? Can we have two wives? Because in that culture it was easy. Wives were chattel. And you'd have a wife to do the laundry and a wife to do the cooking and a wife to do the finances and then you'd have a wife to walk in your arm wherever you go. Wives were just secondary or tertiary citizens. They didn't have much of a place. Now you're telling us something different. What if a, if a spouse has an unbeliever? What do we do in that case? What happens if they leave? Or do I get a divorce? What happens if my spouse dies? Can I remarry? Do we have to get married? All those questions. I wish we had that letter. But let me go back real quickly. Paul wants to give his advice. Who is Paul? He's not married, is he? Well, was Paul married? Let me say yes. Thumbs up. Let me say no. Thumbs down. Okay, well, some scholars believe that he was. Part of the Sanhedrin, if you were part of the Sanhedrin, Uh, you would be married to be in that level of leadership. And so Paul was certainly being groomed there. But Paul would say, don't we have the right to take a wife? And so by the words of Paul, he says, I've got, maybe I do, maybe they read into this, Paul probably did have a wife, but nothing's mentioned about his wife. Some think that his wife died, but there's never any record of any children. 
So some people think that he was, and they would argue that. Uh, but most scholars believe that he wasn't married because he said in this passage, it's good for a man to remain even as I am, as a single. And Paul wasn't part of the Sanhedrin. He was in training, as Acts 9 says, meanwhile Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest in the Sanhedrin, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that he would, if he found any who belonged to the way or Christ's, people, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners. He didn't go as a member of the Sanhedrin. He went as a representative ambassador, delegate, appointed to go kill the Christians. So Paul wasn't in the Sanhedrin, therefore wasn't, a mate, wasn't married. Paul wasn't available due to him being preoccupied with his studies. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my own people, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So you think about these issues, but there's one little funny thing. I won't dwell here, but Paul wasn't handsome. Uh, I don't know if he was uh, marriageable. He was small in size, bald-headed, bold-legged, well-built, eyebrows that met like a dead caterpillar, rather than a long nose and full of grace. Some people thought he was blind one night. He was... Messed up physically. He, had, he wasn't apparent, like he says in, the, in 2 Corinthians 10. Some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person, boy, he doesn't stack up. He isn't impressive. And his speaking amounts to nothing. So I don't know if people, women were drawn to Paul, but whatever reason, it wasn't the issue. Here's the issue for Paul. And let me summarize it in just four minutes, we'll be done. He had something that was taking place in Corinth that you won't get this as you read because we're 2,000 years away. But he had a group of people called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics had a definite cultural influence on the church, as did the Hedonists and the Epicureans. And these two camps, this culture, is the very context that the Holy Spirit's going to lift them up and say, you're done with this culture. But here's what the Gnostics would say. They're, they were just ignorant of what the whole sexual, biblical realm of marriage and purpose of the kingdom in marriage, they had no clue because they were fleshly. But they thought that they were superior because they had this Gnostic special knowledge that would lead them to handle their body in a certain way. And what they did was say, you don't deal with the flesh. You don't deal with the body. The body is not important. And therefore, they would say the human nature is corrupt and evil. Don't worry about the body. Mind and spirit are superior to the body. The physical body is weak and is controlled by these bodily pleasures. The body is not important. So you, no matter what you do, it doesn't make a difference what you do. My body belongs to me. And I decide when and where and what and how and who. The body's been trapped by the Spirit. And so they have this understanding that the body is not good. And they didn't care about the body. They elevated the Spirit. As opposed to the hedonist that says, hey, if you're hungry, sex is natural, go feed it. It's all to be indulged. 
And therefore, there was no restraint among the hedonists. They're completely independent. I am the Lord of my body. I have my urges. I have my rights, and I'll do with what I want. So pleasure your body, and your spirit will be free. And you can see why these, this thinking would influence the Christians and quench the spirit. If they're letting the culture define their sexuality, then they have a, a, a culturally defined spirit defining their sexual interactions in the community, as opposed to having a spirit-controlled sexuality. And the difference are just night and day. In this passage, Paul addresses the first nine verses to Gnostic Christians, Christians who were being influenced by Gnosticism, who said, we're going to deny our sexuality, we're going to discipline and be aesthetic and really be hard on our bodies. And so the first nine passages have to do with these Gnostic-influenced, sex-denying Christians. The second group is the married and the divorced Christians. And how does God want the Spirit to work in relationships that are together regarding sexuality in marriage? And then what do you do when there's divorce and the relationship is broken? The third one is, what do you do with virgin daughters? Women who used to go to the temple, or, or should they go to the temple because that's what the culture says and I'm being pressured, and you don't hear that a lot. Or maybe some men are interested in their daughters, and so there's sexual abuse. No doubt that was going on. The fourth group of people here is single women and the temple. Now that I'm single, what do I do? The last one is the widows. And we'll go into these because Paul has these questions he wants to answer to liberate them from the culture to help them become more spiritually free as they live out in their body. And we'll talk more about that next week because it goes into very practical things that directly answers the questions of people you and I know. With that, I'm going to stop here because I can go to midnight. I'm not going to, for your sake. Let's, let's just thank, thank God. Let's pray. Father, your word is so rich and so deep. We ask that the guidance of the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, that we would see as you see. So give us that grace in Jesus' name. Amen.